0: Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of The Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the digital media editor, and today we're talking all about familial hypercholesterolemia, and I'm joined in today's podcast by Dr. Sam Kim from Cornell Medical Center in New York, and he's written a wonderful education in heart piece with Dr. Ferrias and Dr. Shapiro, and we discuss all about the diagnosis and approach to treatment of FH and FH patients, and also how we can get better at screening for these patients in the general population. I hope you enjoy the show, and please feel free to leave us a review, hopefully a five-star review, on whichever app or platform you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much. Thanks so much uh, for joining me, Dr. Kim. I wonder if we can uh, start off by having you introduce yourself for the podcast. Who
1: are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? Well, thank you for the introduction, and thank you for inviting me, James. Uh, I am a general cardiologist with a focus on cardiac disease prevention and complex lipid disorders. I work at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. I lead our cardiovascular disease uh, prevention program. Sort of my passion and interest has been uh, in treating and preventing uh, early-onset heart disease. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, and I wanted to get you on the podcast
0: really to discuss uh, a wonderful education in heart paper uh, that you've written, uh, which is called familial hypercholesterolemia and emerging therapeutics. Maybe we could start by having you um, define what FH is um, and how
1: common is it in the in the population. Thank you for that question. I think uh, familial hypercholesterolemia is a inherited genetic disorder uh, where you get very high levels of the LDL cholesterol, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol, as we discuss in the public. And because of those high levels, uh, patients are at much higher risk of developing early-onset heart disease. It's a lot more common than people anticipate. It's about 1 in 250 or 1 in 300 for heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, which is, you know, one genetic mutation from a patient. And it's about 1 in 300,000 for homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, where you get one bad copy from each of the parents and have a more profound uh, presentation of this as well, too. It, you know, the heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia is a much more common entity. And it is, I think, people with those mutations often can have their first, uh, significant cardiovascular events in their 40s or 50s, uh, and we kind of quote about a 20 to 25-fold incidence of increased rate of developing coronary disease compared to kind of a, the normal population. It is a it's a genetic mutation where the LDL, the bad cholesterol clearance is impaired, it generally affects sort of uh, the uh, some part of the LDL receptor pathway. The most commonly is the LDL receptor mutation uh, itself, but you can also get mutations in the ApoB, which is sort of the pro- pro kind of the molecule that carries the atherogenic particle and or a gain of function in the PCSK9 uh, protein, uh, which helps with the recycling of the LDL receptor. And there are some less common mutations that we often see as well, too. But I would say those three are the most common ones that we see in the population. And as you say, for heterozygous
0: FH, you tend to run into problems uh, in your 40s. What about for homozygous? When do these patients tend to present?
1: Yeah, the homozygous, I think, are prior challenging because I think they're often diagnosed quite late in their life rather than early in life. If you look at the most recent worldwide registry of the homozygous uh, FH, you know, the, I believe the median was around age 31 when they have their first cardiac event. But I will say from our experience and talking with other people, it can present even as early in the teenage years as well too. So I think anywhere from kind of the teens to kind of early 30s is what we see it. So, you know, it becomes incredibly critical. to identify these patients uh, even earlier than and and then even heterozygote population, and it's a it's a pure LDL issue, is it in
0: terms of the blood picture? Is it's a raised LDL? Yeah, the other other parameters tend to be normal, would you say? Or
1: yeah, I think so. I think this is one of the you know mutations where it's purely driven by an LDL clearance mechanism, and LDL we know is a causal. Um, uh, issue for uh, causing atherosclerotic disease. So it is uh, pretty much driven by the LDL cholesterol. And you've talked about the mutations, but let's move on to the, the diagnostic criteria
0: for, uh, for FH, for both forms of FH. Um, what are the criteria that you tend to use, the tests we tend to use, scoring systems, etc.? Uh, maybe you could run through that at a high level for the audience.
1: Absolutely. I think the diagnosis and sort of the guidelines that are out there, I think are actually a bit confusing because there's a number of guidelines and it's hard to keep track of them. I think we usually just Google a calculator online and type in the criteria. I will say the most common ones that we tend to use are number one, the Dutch lipid score, uh, which uh, basically utilizes the combination of the LDL cutoff family history of early heart disease and physical exam findings, such as uh, most uh, predominantly xanthomas, which are sort of these cholesterol nodules that you can see in the extensor surfaces or, or more commonly in the uh, Achilles tendon, uh, and, or or a positive genetic mutation through genetic screening. I, I would say the Dutch lipid Score. I guess in the US, we tend to use more. Certainly the UK Simon Broom criteria is oft, often used as well too, which have, you know, it's Similar criteria, just a little bit of different cutoff in terms of the the number and the age. And then the MedPED criteria is often used as well too, which utilizes mostly the LDL and the age to get a sense of what is the sensitivity or specificity of predicting FH. Um, We've seen that more commonly in people who are using electronic medical records to search for FH patients. And then the last is sort of some of the guidelines, such as the 2015 American Heart Association uh, scientific statement on FH, uh, you know, which try to simplify those things to um, to uh, To focus more on sort of general ballpark LDL numbers and family history and sort of uh, the European ESE, EAS guidelines also we often use as well to the homozygous guidelines also recently just got updated this past May as well too. Um, uh, so those are I think worth noting. The way I think that I would say the takeaway from this is that number one is sort of the actual LDL cutoff. That's probably the most important thing. I think in general we Okay. Use about LDL 190 or about 5.2 millimoles per, moles per liter uh, as sort of the standard cutoff where we raise concern for a heterozygote familial hypercholesterolemia. And then for a homozygous, I would say an LDL of 400 milligrams per deciliter or 10.3 millimoles uh, moles per liter as sort of the general threshold where we start to consider. And then you ask about early family history of extremely high LDL or atherosclerosis disease, those anthomas that we talked about, um, and, and, and then andor or a, a genetic testing, a positive genetic testing, which clinches the diagnosis, which may or may not be readily available. But that has gotten a lot easier to obtain over the last uh, five to 10 years.
0: And what's your general approach, Sam, to, to these patients? Let's say you have a patient, you're pretty sure has heterozygous FH, and you've done testing and you, it's confirmed your hunch. What's your general approach to, to treatment of these patients, both in terms of lifestyle, if that has any role, and then into the sort of first and second line medications?
1: No, I think that's a great question. I, I think first is you want to make sure you exclude kind of uh, underlying liver disease or uh, chronic kidney disease. I think those are common ones that can often look similar um, in, in terms of your regular blood work as well too. And then I think the importance is to harp on the diagnosis and why this is important to the patient. I think FH is different than somebody who in their 20s or 30s goes to McDonald's and starts to have lots of hamburgers and stuff, uh, because it is a mutation that you're born with. So you are exposed to a high level of LDL since birth. And so this is what makes a, the time aspect is uh, what makes a disadvantage for patients with FH. The way I explain, it is sort of if the y-axis is your LDL cholesterol and the x-axis is your time, it's the area under the curve that uh, that determines your risk of developing atherosclerotic disease. So even though it's easy for people, even in their 20s to 40s to say, well, my friends are also have high cholesterol and they're not on therapy, I, I, I emphasize that, you know, you have had this exposure since birth. And so it becomes a much more of a bigger deal to treat earlier and kind of establishing that diagnosis. And then, you know, then you move on to sort of the dietary um, counseling as well, too. I think certainly diet does not have the same sort of uh, positive impact as sort of other normal populations without the FH mutation, but it still is important in with the emphasis on, you know, reduction of saturated fats, which can really uh, impact your LDL, Actually, I did have a patient not that long ago who went on sort of like a keto diet uh, with a, a undiagnosed familial hypercholesterolemia and ended up doubling his LDL. Uh, and wow. it, these are things that I think that are underappreciated. So these patients with the FH, I think dietary counseling is important because people are also competing for same other respectors of trying to lose weight and you know stay in shape as well too. And then we you know discuss sort of the therapies that are available to do it. And I think. It often takes, I think even at least two or three visits before some people are willing to even consider uh, medical therapy. And I think it's important not to spring and force people to uh, take medications. You know, I I, I use that first visit to kind of lay the groundwork of the importance of the diagnosis and let the patient do their own research as well, too. And then in terms of the algorithm of therapy, um, you know, certainly statins are the first line therapy. Um, I tend to start a little bit at a low doses and titrated up the dosage to a high intensity statin just to earn sort of the patient's trust in that, you know, we're going to take the slow so that you get used to it. And then, um, then we talk about, you know, the need for potential second or third line therapy. There are some heterozygous that I think do well just on a single statin therapy, but I will say a large portion of patients for you do usually require at least a second or a third line therapy, depending on their LDL level. Uh, So, uh, you know, we go through sort of uh, what that step might look like. Hmm. Yeah, and you've got a very nice um, figure, figure number two, um,
0: in your paper, which um, I will make free for a few weeks after the podcast comes out if it's not already free. Um, And as you say, exactly, yeah, statin therapy to start with. And then ezetimibe is, is a sort of common uh, second line drug or a two drug combo, as you as you put it in your paper.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you always start with the LDL, and the first goal is to try to get the LDL down at least fifty percent. That's always the goal before you start even thinking about LDL numbers, whether you want to say threshold or cutoff. And then you want to try to get to for primary prevention as a general rule of LDL less than one hundred milligrams per deciliter or two point five millimoles per liter or you know, at least uh, less than 70 milligrams per liter or 1.8 millimoles per liter for those with uh, more established atherosclerotic disease. Um, the ESC guidelines I know aim for more like 55 milligrams per deciliter or, for, or 1.4 millimoles per liter. But I think that's sort of the general cutoff that we use. I would say the ezetimibe is a sort of the second line therapy that we use. Uh, uh, it all depends on sort of uh, insurance payers and what's covered or not. As well too, isetomide is a intestinal blockade, um, which also uh, upregulates the LDL receptors, and it is worth trying because there are some patients who can are more hyper responders, um, and and can be a good option, you know. And a lot of uh, payers may not allow you to skip to kind of injectable medications unless you give it a try and see You demonstrate that their LDL levels are not still at goal. And acetamide still works even though there's a genetic defect in the LDL receptor? Yeah, you still get some effect on it as well, too. And I think, you know, the other thing is, you know, if you do genetic testing, uh, some people actually also have mutations for ABCG5 or ABCG8, other mutations where they might respond really well to azetamide. So uh, it's and we don't always routinely uh, test genetically. So it's worth at least taking a look at it and see if it might work. And, you know, the algorithm, as we discussed, you can do upfront therapy with both a statin plus is that a mob? You can just start with statin. I think a lot of it is sort of based on provider and patient preference in terms of how they want to approach this. And what would be your, your next uh, step? Let's say the
0: LDL is not controlled to those numbers that you mentioned before. What what are we thinking about next?
1: Yeah, I think then you have really uh, three options. And I would say probably the most commonly we use a PCSK9 Uh, Inhibitor, a monoclonal antibody uh, in the form of either alirocumab or evalucumab as the next line therapy. These are generally extremely well tolerated uh, injectable subcutaneous medication there. Uh, On average, it can be done once every two weeks or once every four weeks. I will say most patients tend to like the once every two week option, uh, and it's self administered. uh, And it's a monoclonal antibody against the PCSK9 protein which deals with the recycling of the LDL receptor. And by blocking that, the LDL receptor can stay on the surface longer to clear additional LDL cholesterol. And that, some people respond extremely uh, well to that, uh, and that can be a nice option. That, I would say the monoclonal injectables are sort of what we use often. Nowadays, we also now have uh, recent approval within the last couple of years with inclisiran, which is an RNA-based therapy, which targets the pcsk 9 at the RNA level and the hepatocytes as well too, which is administer. Uh, in the in the chronically about once every six months or so. So that is another option that is, uh, but the challenge is sort of, it's a newer medication, it has to be administered in a healthcare facility. So those are kind of consideration. Uh, and then, you know, if the patient, let's say, doesn't want to take an injectable, and you're kind of reaching for it, sometimes we could think about adding uh, bempadoic acid, which was just also in the last during the pandemic approved um, as a pro drug that can be metabolized in your liver, which works on a pathway just upstream of the statin pathway by inhibiting ATP citrate lysis, that also becomes an option as well too. I will say the majority of heterozygote FH, you know, on two or three of these combinations almost always reach sort of the LDL target that we want to get to. And what about the the
0: homozygous patients? You mentioned these uh, also in the paper. Uh, do we have to do we use the same approach or how how do you tend to tackle those patients albeit much rarer patients that you identify?
1: Yeah I think homozygous is an extremely challenging patient population. I will say I don't almost nobody really gets even to the anywhere near the actual ideal goal of where they are. So the goal is to try to get as low as possible. I think the approach is similar um, in that you start with the usually a statin and azetimibe, you often will try the PCSK9 inhibitor. I will say the problem with the PCSK9 is that some people, if they don't have much LDL receptor activity, they may not respond that well to the PCSK9 inhibitors. And we've seen this from time to time. Um, um, you know, so that's worth noting. And then sort of the next line is really there's two other medications that we can consider uh, more commonly. Uh, one is uh, Luminopi, which has been around for a little bit of a long time now, which is an MP- MTP inhibitor, basically blocks the ApoB packaging within the liver. Uh, it is an oral medication and can be very effective, but certainly it does uh, require a lot more serial liver enzyme uh, monitoring because of potential Toxicity. Patients have to be on very low fat diet, which can be unpleasant to, um, uh, get, you know, maintain as well, to especially in younger populations. So that is an option. And then more recently, with the approval of Evinacumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against ngptl 3 uh, which seems to, um, kind of deal with the enhanced the VLDL clearance uh, of these uh, kind of more remnant uh, cholesterol particle can be also considered as an option. I will say this one is a once a month infusion, like a true intravenous option. So uh, it has been shown in the studies that even patients who are on all these therapies, when you add it on, you can get an additional close to 50% reduction. So that has really, I think, uh, brought another kind of tool within our toolbox to treat these patients. Uh, certainly, it is not an easy medication to get approval for or to set up. But As you can imagine, the challenges of a -a once-a-month IV infusions, but it is becoming uh, more and more available. And then, sort of the last option is apheresis, where um, it's the way I kind of describe it. It's almost kind of like a a gentler dialysis uh, to remove the cholesterol, uh, uh, apoB-containing these LDL cholesterol uh, from your bloodstream. But it it will often require, depending on the patient, once a week or once every two weeks. Um, where apheresis, where the cholesterol is cleared from your bloodstream, as well too, uh, a lot of patients may require more long-term intravenous access, um, whether that's a port or an IV line, uh, so that they can continue these therapies as well too. So those are kind of the options that are available as well too, and it is, I think, uh, you know, sort of one of the challenges, and we discussed this in our paper, is that the access to those kind of second or third, like all of these kind of more intense treatment is really dependent on whether or not you are closer to a large academic centers, which may or may not be readily available.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And as you say, these treatments are also very expensive as you go down the pyramid uh, in your figure two there, I'm sure. Um, what about getting better at identifying these patients? I mean, by definition, almost all of them are going to be asymptomatic, right? They haven't had an event, most of them. Hopefully, right? we pick them up before they have an event. What are the kind of strategies that you've seen out there for trying to identify? patients
1: who who have FH before they have an event? I think that's the million-dollar question that we're all struggling with as well, too. I think the emphasis should be on patient awareness and education about these issues as well, too. I think it's, it, from my view, it's unfair to ask GPs or primary care doctors to take on this burden as another thing to discuss in their 15-minute visit or 20-minute visit, is how do we let the patients know that this is a A pretty serious uh, entity. It's pretty common, but it's treatable. It's completely treatable if we identify early as well, too. And you know, there's been a lot of great effort from the uh, Family Heart Foundation and a number of other places as well, too. Uh, And I think that's sort of an ongoing um, uh, struggle to get patients to be aware of that. I think second is how do we leverage our electronic medical system to identify these patients and reach out to them? There's a lot of algorithms out there in terms of how to do it, but it's really hard to implement them in a way that reaches out to patients. But I think with the pandemic, at least in the US, there's been an acceleration in the use of uh, electronic messaging toolboxes and such. And, you know, there's going to be more and more within the healthcare systems looking at identifying patients with very high LDL cholesterol and being more proactively about reaching out to them. And then third is, if you do find somebody, you have to remind them to get their children or first degree relatives screened as well too. sort of what we call cascade screening and, and see if we can identify them and, and get them treated as well too, because there's probably at least a 50% chance that one of their family members may have the disease as well too. And I would say the last is and this is a challenge is this takes time, you know, you cannot expect patients on a once a year visit to come to terms with this. And part of the problem is like, you know, we and I'm guilty of this, too, we'll, we'll see a patient, we'll start them on a high intensity stat, and then we'll say, we'll see you next year, or, you know, just because of the, the pressures of the medical system. But, you know, I think you have to treat this as a A real issue where people want to be heard. They want to ask questions. They're committing to a lifelong therapy. And, and I think guiding them and and more frequently checking these labs to monitor progress is important too. And then one more thing I will say is I think we're going to probably do more subclinical imaging of these patients. And I I know, you know, the guidelines don't necessarily recommend CT screening for these patients because they have established uh, reasons to be on a lipid lowering therapy. But oftentimes, I think if people often have early onset atherosclerosis on their cardiac CT, it may change how they view their disease or uh, the intensity of treatment as well, too. So, I think that is also a changing paradigm within this field.
0: That's fantastic, and I, as I say, I'll make the the paper open access so people can have a read. And you even discuss things like uh, gene editing therapies, which are you know potentially on the horizon. Uh, which uh, does sound. Uh, Yeah, super interesting uh, how that works coming along. Uh, But thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for uh, taking the time to explain this all to me today and to
1: the audience. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for all your time. Thank you, James. I appreciate this. And uh, I hope this, uh, thank you for kind of the awareness about this issue. And I hope uh, people enjoy reading this.